This morning, we're continuing in a series of sermons where we've been looking to the Bible for God's wisdom on how to act in one of the most stressful times that any of us have ever experienced in our lives. How do we need to be thinking in times like this and and reacting and speaking and behaving in the midst of what really feels like multiple wars? There's this kind of pandemic that's at war with us. There's a political war. There's a cultural war. Our world is wounded. And it, it feels like things just keep happening and that there's nothing that's as it's supposed to be. So we've been focusing our attention to Jesus' teaching that the church is to be this shining city on a hill. And, and we've been focusing on that in this particular moment. What does it mean for us, the Church of the Incarnation, here in Harrisonburg, two days before the most divisive election of a president that, that I've ever lived through, here in the midst of the pandemic and all these other things, what does it mean for our church to be a shining city on a hill with gates wide open, pledging our allegiance and our loyalty to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and inviting others to come and find healing in our church? What does it mean for us to be a place of healing in this particular moment and not to be caught up in all of the opposite of healing that's going on? And we've seen over and over over the last um, weeks, we've seen that our first response as a church in this moment needs to be lament. But it's, it's lament that doesn't stop with lament. It's lament that grows into action, particularly action for the poor. That this is how the church historically has responded in moments like this. It's gone to prayer And then to action. Prayer that leads into work for the poor. Sacrificially disadvantaging ourselves in order to advantage those who are most vulnerable during this time. Now this morning, we're going to pick back up in in a series that we stopped back in the spring. Back in the spring, we went, we spent about seven weeks going through James chapter 1. This morning, we're going to pick back up with James chapter 2, but but within this idea of the church being a city on a hill, how we're going to listen to another couple of chapters in James with, with the question in our mind, how is this helping us to be a city on a hill in this particular moment in, in our world? So if you brought along a Bible, find James chapter 2, these first 13 verses that Bob read to us. And it's interesting um, As we pick back up in James, right where we left off, we pick up with James talking to a church living in a similar moment that we're living in who is not attending to the poor. They're they're not doing what they ought to be doing when it comes to being a shining city on the hill by, by wisely giving their attention and their actions and disadvantaging themselves on behalf of the poor. In fact, we've got a church here who's doing the exact opposite, right? When Bob read it to us earlier, they were favoring the rich and dishonoring the poor. And so James takes them to task. 
So let's listen to this passage with our, in our own context and say, okay, God, how are you addressing us through this? Now, he starts in chapter 2, verse 1, by saying simply, the church should not give preferential treatment to those with wealth. James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And then in verses 2 to 3, he gives this disgusting illustration, right? A rich man comes into church. A poor man comes into church. You can tell by the way they're dressed. You, you say to the rich man, oh, here's a great seat. And you say to the poor man, why don't you sit at my feet? Like, that's disgusting to us, right? I mean, we read that and we're like, how do you even have to tell people not to do this? Like, who wouldn't know that that's wrong for the church? And then in verses 4 through 13, he gives them six reasons that they shouldn't behave like that. Now, it's kind of funny for us to read this because none of us would take six reasons to not do that with somebody this morning, right? But this is written in a different moment in time. Don't worry, the zing is going to come for us. But let's start with, let's just go through their six reasons, okay? The first one is in verse 4. The first reason it's wrong for Christians to show favoritism toward people based on their wealth is because when we do, notice what he says in verse 4. When we do this, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? In other words, favoritism based on economics severs the unity of the church. So favoring the rich over the poor divides a church up between the haves and the have-nots. And the church, if we're going to be a shining city on a hill, we should not be a place where the more you give, the more you have, the better seat you get. Number two, the second reason that favoring the rich over the poor is wrong for Christians, it's wrong for the church, this comes up at the end of verse 4. When we do this kind of thing, we become judges with evil thoughts. Now, that, that is to say that if you're a part of a group that tends to have a price tag for admittance, then as time goes by, that will shape your thinking into becoming a kind of person who begins to value people based on their economic abilities. Being a part of that kind of group shapes your thinking into how you value or disvalue people. And that's an evil way of thinking. To wake up one day and suddenly realize that you tilt toward people with wealth, that you gravitate at parties toward them, that you tend to give favorable treatment to people who have, have power, that is evil. That's an evil pattern of thought. A third reason, he says, that it's wrong for churches to behave like this, when churches behave like that, his second reason was, your children will become people who value people like that as time goes by. All right, the, the third reason is verse 5. Third reason it's wrong for a church to favor the rich over the poor. Listen to James chapter 2, verse 5. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This was Mary's Magnificat, right? Holy cow. The Lord chose this poor little Galilean peasant. This, and then she picks up and she begins to sing a song about all those passages in the Old Testament where God says he's going to work 
from and through and with the poor. He's going to give them his favor. And so here is James looking back at that whole pattern of God's behavior in Scripture. And he says, when we choose or give preference to the rich over the poor, we're not patterning our life after God. And Christians basically say, what would Jesus do? And then they do it. What would God do? And then they do it. And what does God do in Scripture? He has a preferential option for the poor. Fourth reason, it's wrong for the church to favor the rich of the poor, at least for this particular church that James is writing to this particular group of churches, is that in their particular community, it was the rich who were persecuting the Christians in the church. Listen to verses 6 and 7. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you? The ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I mean, this is crazy to us, right? So they're giving preference to the ones who are oppressing them interpersonally, persecuting them judicially, and blaspheming the name of Jesus. Now, at this point, you're reading this and you're thinking, this church is a bunch of nincompoops. Like, not only, I mean, you've got to feel that, right? Like, that feels so dumb. Remember, the zing's going to come. So, all right, verse 10, a fifth reason it's wrong for a church to favor the rich over the poor is that it's a violation of Scripture. Listen to verse 10. I guess I should turn to James chapter 2, not Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but you murder... It's not like you can say, well, I keep God's scripture. I'm not committing adultery. Stab, 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 right? Um, And then he he says, so, and he says, you've become transgressors of the law. And and, in scripture, what he's doing here is he's saying, scripture is God's word and it's God's will. And it clearly teaches us to love our neighbors as ourselves and the poor are our neighbors. And so favoritism violates this teaching of scripture. And so it's sin. If we commit this sin, we're transgressors of God's law, of God's word, of God's will. Christians don't only ask, what would Jesus do? Christians say, what does the Bible say? Christians believe the Bible is the word of God. Now, if those reasons are not strong enough in and themselves to motivate any of you who struggle with this particular sin, then let the final one scare the living daylights out of you. The final two verses of James chapter 2. James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This means that a church has two options when it comes to judgment. We will face God as a merciless judge, a judge without mercy. Or we will face God as a merciful judge. And how we treat the poor will determine what our experience of God's judgment will be. James is telling these particular churches that if they repent of their prejudice, they will experience God's gracious forgiveness and mercy. A life of mercy toward the poor leads to the blessing of God at the last judgment. Now that's pretty hardcore. 
It sounds a lot like Jesus, right? The gospel passage that that Sam read to us in Matthew chapter 25, the famous passage of the sheep and the goats. In that passage, Jesus himself tells us that in the final judgment, a lot is going to deal with how we've treated the poor. I mean, over and over in Jesus' life, this issue comes up. Jesus refused to disentangle his life, his ministry, his message, his definition of the gospel. He refused to disentangle it from how we treat the poor, from the needs of the poor. Think about this. Jesus' first temptation was hunger. A temptation that most people in this room have never faced. <laughs> it was funny. I was with Bishop Andudu, and somebody was preaching on this passage in Genesis where um, Abraham goes to Egypt, and he's scared. So he, 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 he says to the leaders that Sarah, his wife, is actually a sister so that they don't think that Abraham's in the way and kill Abraham and um, take his wife as their spouse. And they end up taking Sarah as their, their, their spouse. And Bishop Bandudu and I were talking, and I was asking him about this issue of lying. And he says, yeah, people who think they wouldn't lie when they're hungry have never been hungry. People lie at borders when they're hungry. And it's easy for us to sit here in judgment on that. Hunger was Jesus' first Hardcore, serious temptation. And then when he began his ministry and his sermon in the synagogue of Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, his opening salvo was he opens the Bible to Isaiah chapter 6 and he says, hey, here's what I'm about to do. God is calling, anointing me, calling me, giving me a ministry to preach the good news to the poor. And then right after he preached that sermon, the Nazarene Manifesto, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and the very first beatitude is, blessed are the poor. And when Jesus provides evidence to John the Baptist, John the Baptist is his closest supporter and he gets put in prison. Life gets hard. And like a lot of us, when life gets hard, John says, am I sure I've chosen the right way? Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Jesus' evidence to John is the poor have the gospel preached to them. In fact, all through the Bible, God takes his stand unconditionally and passionately on the side of the threatened innocent, the oppressed poor and widows and orphans and aliens. And and he takes his, his stand against the lofty and on behalf of the lowly, against those who enjoy right and privilege and on behalf of those who don't have enough social capital to secure privilege and right. If we're going to pay attention to all of this, if we're going to take seriously Scripture's ability to direct our paths and and show us the way, we've got to ask, how in the world was that church so dumb that they would say to a rich man, oh, you sit here, and a poor man, oh, you sit down. You know how they were so dumb? That's the power of culture. It blinds you. They weren't dumber than us. They weren't even not Christians. He clearly calls them my beloved brothers. These are pious, Jesus-loving, God-following Christians. And yet the power of culture is so strong that they're showing favoritism to the very people that are mistreating them. Why? Because they're just like us. Whoever 
Whoever discovered water, it was not a fish. When you live in a culture, the hardest thing to do is to get some critical distance from it and to see it. And the fact of the matter is, the Roman culture that these people lived in was a culture of patrimony. It was a culture of um, privilege based on wealth. That was how the culture acted. It was a culture based on giving gifts to people with more power than you so that they could then help you make it through life. And they were just caught up in the culture. It's, it's just like looking at Christians in the South caught up in slavery and saying, how could they be so dumb? So our job when we read passages like this where it feels like people aren't as smart as us, back, you know, those people back then, our job is to say, wait a minute, they're just as smart as us. They love Jesus. How am I then immersed in an economic system that I'm blind to that people years from now are going to look back and say, those cats at the Church of the Incarnation were stupid. I mean, couldn't they see this thing that we see so clearly? I think that if we're going to take James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, and really let God open up our hearts to see, are there places where we are favoring the rich? Are there places where we're bought into an economic system that is shaping us to value people based on their net worth and to give micro-treatments of preferential kind of benevolence toward those with power and money and not toward those without it? Here are six kind of actions, I think, coming out of James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13 that we can use so that we as a church can make sure that in the last judgment... We face a merciful Christ. Number one, we have got to come to grips with the extent to which we are immersed in a consumeristic, materialistic culture. And if we think we can swim in those waters and be untouched by those waters, then we're foolish. As we thank God for the great salvation he gives us through Jesus Christ, for his revelation in scripture, which is a light for our path, and for the Holy Spirit's power to make us witnesses and servants in the world, we need to come to grips with the extent to which we ourselves are caught up in a culture that favors those with wealth. And to do that, we need to develop a critical grasp of our bloated consumer culture that we're living in, our social media, our advertising, our movies, our TV, it all works powerfully to stoke the fire of materialism. The economic system in our culture depends on constantly creating new wants that become needs. And there are many signs that this way of life is damaging us by an addiction to excess. We live in a culture that is a hurricane of desires. We seem to have lost the ability as a result to distinguish between wants and needs. And that, that ability to distinguish between a want and a need is critical to having money straight in your eyesight. So much of the church in the United States is like Jonah. 
fast asleep in the bottom of the boat as the storm of materialism is gathering momentum. And just like with Jonah, it is often the non-Christians who are most concerned about the storm as Christians are sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And they're begging the Christians, call on your God. We're drowning here. We see it and you're sleeping through it. Because we're submerged in the idolatry of our day. Whoever discovered water, it wasn't a fish. Whoever discovers materialism, it's not those of us living in it. Remember, in the Bible, addiction to excess is idolatry. Full stop. We must become disturbed by the injustices in our world. We must be concerned for the victims. We must be moved to to repentance by our complicity in the system. And this has to be accompanied by repentance, by by a widespread, full-on commitment to discerning the difference between needs and wants and to embracing the virtue of simplicity so that we can resist this culture. The the second thing we've got to do, the first is we've got to really find ways to come to grips with how we're immersed in it. The second thing we need to do is we need to partner with churches filled with poor people. Because our church is not. We need to partner with churches filled with the poorest of the poor. And by the grace of God, we're doing that. By God's grace, we've just formed this partnership with the poorest Christians on the earth. The Christians in the Nuba Mountains of Sudan. That's why that partnership, that's one of the reasons it's so absolutely critical. Because our church needs to find appropriate ways to reach out with open hands to the poor, not only locally, but nationally and globally. The church already exists all around the world among the poorest of the poor. And Western churches need to partner with those churches in a genuine spirit of listening and learning and serving. Third, we need to make a place for those among us who are called to give up all of their wealth. This is a profound weakness of the Protestant church. We need to make a place for those who are called to renounce renounce their wealth. Right? Not everybody is the rich. God, God doesn't call everybody to give up their wealth. I mean, you find Jesus with the rich young ruler saying, give up your wealth. And, but there's other people that he doesn't call to do that. You find the church in Acts giving up its wealth. But then you find the church in Antioch having enough wealth to share with others. The, the Bible's treatment of money is complex. And God's call on different people, it's different things. Some God calls to renounce all of their worldly goods. Some God calls to deal with their wealth through generosity and simplicity. And others God calls, these are the three basic ways of dealing with wealth in the Bible. Renounce it, fight it with generosity and simplicity. And third, kind of live a a really, really strict kind of Spartan lifestyle. But here's the problem for us, right? The Catholic Church has room for making heroes out of those who renounce their wealth, right? They've got the Mother Teresas, right? And they've got whole groups of people who gave everything away and then a system to support those people, the monasteries, the, the, the holy orders. We don't have any... If somebody wanted to renounce their wealth in our church, there would be no system to actually support them in it. 
There'd be no way for them to continue. Now, look, I think the Protestant church did a good job in, in fighting the monasteries when they did. But we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Fourth, if we're going to take seriously the power of wealth to blind us to our complicity with injustices that are disgusting. The fourth thing we need to do is recognize that there is a place for the state and there's a place for the church when it comes to adequately addressing the needs of the poor. If we had time, we would have read through all of Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31, there's two parts to it. In the first part, you've got a king responding to the poor. In the second part, you have a businesswoman, a homemaker, an entrepreneur responding to the needs of the poor. And when you read Proverbs 31, recognizing that the end of this book, that's all designed to teach you how to live your life in the fear of God, and it ends with two kind of contradictory examples. How does a king live his life in the fear of God? by responding to the poor through the state? And how does a homemaker, a businesswoman, an entrepreneur? And it's two very different ways. As a ruler, King Lemuel has power and governmental authority and he learned from his mom that he's got to guard his energy by not partying, by not having adulterous sexual relationships, and by not getting drunk. And this was vital because if he gives his energy away, he will not have the energy it takes to lead the state to respond appropriately to the poor. And if by the mercy of God, someone in this church is called into politics, and please God, let it be, then this will be your responsibility. to guard. It's interesting. Do you know that for the first time in living memory, both of our candidates for presidents are teetotalers. Both Biden and Trump don't drink. And they both seem to have made this commitment as an effort to guard their energies for the public, for the lives they wanted to live. And this is a, this is a thing. The state has to help alleviate poverty directly and indirectly. Directly by protecting the most vulnerable, by controlling working conditions, and by looking after the unemployed. And indirectly, by creating healthy conditions for economic activities that lead to opportunities for meaningful work. That's the job of the state when it comes to the poor. But then we've got the second half of Proverbs 31. And here we've got this valiant woman who's not a king, but she has cultural power. She's a successful business person. King Lemuel's concern in the first half is on the national level. Hers is on a local level. In the highlands of Judea where she lives and travels, in her business dealings, she comes across the poor and needy and is generous toward them. And we're told, we're told how, we're not told exactly how she responds to them, but what we see is that this wise woman who lives her life in the fear of God has learned to go about her daily business before the face of God with the poor always in her view. Fifth. If we're going to take James chapter 2 seriously and try to come to grips with our consumerist culture and to be a church that's a shining city on a hill, we need people who will stay up late into the night talking and dreaming and planning for how we can pull all of this off. I know it's a dirty word for some of you, cover your children's ears, but Marxist, they were famous for sitting up into the early hours of the morning, drinking strong coffee and smoking and working out how to transform the world. 
No, I'm not a Marxist. But that idea, that model of people staying up late at night because there's a problem that they're energized about and they need to turn their attention to. That's what the early church did. The early church said we cannot disentangle our responsibility to the poor with our allegiance to King Jesus. And they stayed up late at night and they invented hospitals and they invented public free education. And like I told you last week, Baptists in Texas in the 20s invented health insurance, and over and over, down through the centuries, this is what the church has done. We need to plant fresh signs of the new creation of God's kingdom that will alert Christians and non-Christians alike that there's a city within the city where life is different. And number six, straight out of James chapter two, let us remember we will be judged on this. We will be judged on how we creatively and effectively and energetically responded to the least of these among us. We will be judged on how we respond to the least of these. In our attitude toward the poor, our treatment of Christ is at stake. And so too is the well-being of this community. Our church is for the glory of God and the good of this city, this community. And in God's economics... An economic system is judged not on how much wealth it creates, but on how the poor are faring within that economic system. That's the report card. That's what we need on our news media. X number of poor have moved off of the issue. Like, that's the critical criteria in God's economy, is in a community, how is its local economy affecting the lives of the poorest of the poor in that community? For some of us, we're going to have to take this seriously and look at our love of vacations and our love of very fine things as competition for our love of the poor. To be the church, a shining city on a hill, what we see in James chapter 2 is when they did not give preferential option to the rich man, they disadvantaged themselves. They hurt their, their church because that's how that economy worked. And we as a church need to be willing to recognize that's not the way our economy works, but how are we working to disadvantage ourselves in order to advantage the poorest of the poor? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.